I remind you where we are. Since chapter 4 of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been, in a way, unpacking the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. In other words, he's showing us how the victory of the Son of God over our sin and death changes our life here and now. First, we saw how Paul showed us in general the communal life that we should have together as a body, as a church, reflecting the unity of the kingdom of God that Christ has secured for us. The walls that so divide people here in this world, uh, the walls and barriers between us, have all been taken down by Christ, and they find no place in the kingdom of God because Christ himself is our peace, and he has remade humanity in himself. And then we saw how Paul then turns to individuals to show us how we must live in wisdom and in step with the Holy Spirit because Christ's kingdom of light has dawned and we belong to it. He has set us apart from this world and the fate of death. And now we belong to the light in his kingdom and eternal life by his Holy Spirit. And then Paul kind of zoomed in a bit more to show us how the gospel of Jesus informs and shapes our specific relationships that exist here among us in the church, as members of the church. And he first talked about marriage, the, the spouse, uh, spousal relationship between husband and wife, and then parenting, parents with their children. And now, as we come to our passage today, Paul addresses yet another relationship that existed in the ancient Greco-Roman world, namely slavery. And so, with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with their eye upon you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him." So far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hmm. Well, here at the opening, I have to admit that there are some passages in God's holy word that on my first read through them, I do not personally like. And those, uh, of those texts, this is one of those for me. Now, by saying that, that does not mean that I distrust the Bible in any way. I believe that it is the very word of God, and therefore it is perfect because he is perfect. And so when I find myself on that first reading, not liking the text or passage before me, I don't distrust God, I distrust myself in not liking it. Why? Well, because, first of all, God's word has proven itself faithful and true in thousands of ways. 
For example, it's astonishing how this book, which consists of a variety of complex, different styles of literature and genre, come together, all of these letters and stories and historical narratives and the poetry itself to tell this one comprehensive and cohesive and consistent story, all culminating in Christ himself. And it was written by about 40 different authors from uh, different generations. And so it speaks in, in a sense of the consistency of God's word. Not only that, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And that again speaks of the trustworthiness of God's word. It has proven itself faithful and true. Now, by comparison, I have changed my mind and lied many times in my very short 32 years of existence on this earth. And so, with that, I know that, or I hope that I am relatively trustworthy with respect to other people, uh, and I try to be trustworthy, but in comparison with God's word, I am not trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy and reliable. Therefore, when I come to a text like this that at first glance I don't like, I distrust myself and my interpretation of it and ask myself questions, right? What does that look like? Well, first, I try and figure out why I don't like it. And so I ask myself, what in my own personal history or the history of my culture in which I belong predisposes me to not like this passage, right? Could it be that I am too personally involved or enveloped in something in my life or culture that has compromised my ability to judge objectively and impartially God's word here before me? And when I asked these questions of myself in analysis of this passage here, I came to this conclusion, that in a sense, our nation is still suffering PTSD after the atrocities of the Atlantic slave trade that spanned from the 16th century to the 19th century. You can't just erase those evils from our collective memory as a people, nor should we try to do that. As a nation, we are still, in a way, trying to heal those old wounds in our collective history. What that means for us is that it is nearly impossible to approach this passage without having immediate mental images of slavery in the United States, because that's the only kind of slavery that we all learned about in our schools or the, the only kind that we really talk about today. And therein lies the reason why I find this text hard to like at first glance. It's hard for me to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying without seeing it through those glasses tinted with the racist evils of modern slavery. And so for us to see this text, to learn from it, to appreciate it, well, we first need to set aside those modern glasses, that modern perspective, to see Paul's own context in the middle of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. And that will be our first point, the context of slavery in antiquity. And so first notice that in this letter to the Christians at the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, he addresses slaves and masters. What does that imply? Well, it implies that Paul assumes that members of the church there, well, 
that the membership had a significant number of both slaves and masters. And some scholars estimate that slaves comprised about one-fifth to one-third of a population uh, of a city such as Ephesus in the ancient culture. And so in daily life, you know, as you're going about to the marketplace, uh, going to buy groceries, etc., one out of four people that you'd meet would be a slave. It was not a small part of their society. It was a basic element of it. In his commentary, Dr. Voss says, slavery was not an incidental feature of the ancient agrarian economies of the first century, but part of its essential fabric. So it was this essential part of their culture. But now it's important to understand that when the church at Ephesus, when they first heard this letter read to them and they heard the term slaves, they did not think of one particular ethnicity. Ancient slavery was not racially or ethnically charged in any way. According to historian Everett Ferguson, most slaves came from the eastern part of the empire, but Germans, Celtic people, and natives of Britain were important new sources of slaves in the empire. So you can kind of picture that. It's this whole variety of different ethnicities that were slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, in public life, there was no real way of distinguishing who was a slave and who was a master simply by physical appearance. You could not pick them out in a crowd based on looks or appearance. And it's fascinating that the Roman philosopher and statesman named uh, Seneca, he writes about how there was a proposal in the Senate that slaves were to wear a distinctive dress to set them apart from others, and that this proposal was defeated lest the slaves learn how numerous they were. So even the slaves themselves couldn't uh, identify who else were slaves. They couldn't pick them out from the crowd. So that, that's another important factor, distinguishing and helping us understand the context. Also, another important thing to consider is that in the Greco-Roman world, the enslavement of individuals was a result of a variety of situations and life circumstances. So, for instance, sometimes it was the fate of prisoners of war. So in war, after the, victor, the victors uh, won the battle, then they would take the prisoners of war and sell them as slaves. Another instance was that in the courts of law, when someone was condemned for certain crimes, that at times they were punished to slavery. Sometimes, as well, there are other instances, and it's, it's cruel and it's sad to consider, but some parents would abandon their children, their infants at birth, especially sometimes women, uh, young baby girls, abandon them in the streets, leaving them to die. And so what would happen is that slave traders would go and find these young infants and then sell them into slavery. And many others, this is interesting and important as well, many others voluntarily submitted to their own slavery. Why? Well, when they came into debt financially, or they faced, on one hand, starvation with no welfare program by the government to take care of them, right? And so the only alternative is starvation, die, myself and my family, or sell myself or my child into slavery in order to provide and survive for us as a family. So that's another way in which 
uh, slaves uh, came into existence as a source of slavery to pay off debts. Now, while enslaved persons were considered living property of their masters in antiquity, they were also recognized as persons in antiquity, which is significant. They were often educated and employed in a variety of different jobs from administrators of large estates, managers of business and trade for their masters, and also, this is very important, that enslaved persons could earn their own wages, save up their money, and use that money to purchase their own freedom. So Ferguson, that historian, writes that the expectation of manumission, which means the freedom by purchase, was an effective incentive for good service. And so they had that incentive, that motive, that I can serve well, earn wages, and buy my own freedom. And so, with this brief analysis here of the culture, I hope you can see that slavery in the ancient Greco-Roman world was very, very different, very different than what happened here on the soil of the United States. And so for that reason, some people uh, prefer to use the term indentured servitude instead of slavery because uh, that term slavery is so tinted and stained by our own collective memory of what has happened here in modern history. Now, does that mean that Paul condoned or supported such slavery, even that ancient version, in his own day? No. I am sure that if we could ask the Apostle Paul in person that any kind of enslavement of persons is okay or ideal, that the Apostle Paul would say, no, absolutely not. It is not ideal. It is not okay. And the theologian Charles Hodge remarks on this passage that even though the biblical writers considered this ancient form of slavery as lawful under certain circumstances, it does not mean that they may be cherished or rendered perpetual. It doesn't mean that he's endorsing it for, or into the future forever. Unlike the institution of marriage or the family, which were part of God's original design for human society before sin entered the world, slavery in God's word is never sanctioned by God. It is never endorsed or authorized as God's way of treating others made in his own image. And so, even this ancient form of slavery was a flawed institution in a broken world and far from the ideal. So, with that historical context before us, I hope we can better understand why the Apostle Paul here does not totally condemn slavery nor call for its disillusion. Paul doesn't stir up the Christians to an immediate social revolution in the Roman Empire, but the seeds of its undoing, the seeds of its ending are here in this text. And Dr. Baugh in his commentary writes this, Paul did not condemn slavery outright, yet... What he did do was so tactful and wise that it ultimately led to the demise of slavery in the ancient world. He extended the full inheritance and citizenship of slaves in Christ's kingdom. And in our last point, in the third point, we'll circle back and consider what those seeds of truth that Paul plants here in this text, that if, if they are embraced by faith, would lead humanity to end all kinds of human enslavement. But first, let's consider the conduct of service that Paul calls both enslaved persons to 
and masters to in this text. And so that will be our second point, conduct of service. Well, Paul here, he commanded enslaved persons to obey their earthly masters with fear and respect, sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, he says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is upon you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for what they do, the good they do, whether they are slave or free. And so here, from this text, we see that even in an imperfect system and structure, Paul calls these Christians to obey with sincerity of heart. They were to obey the commands of their earthly masters wholeheartedly, not with resentment, not with cunning. They were to obey orders of their masters at all times, not only when their earthly masters were watching them. And these commands here, they speak directly to the temptations that an ancient enslaved person faced. It was natural for such a person to despise and hate their earthly masters in the ancient world, and probably not to their face because that would uh, come back and haunt them in a sense, but behind their back, right, to despise them, to grow, uh, to let resentment and hate stir up in their hearts. In fact, it was not uncommon for slaves in the ancient culture to on occasion murder their masters in their sleep or on the road when they're traveling together. And so to address such hostility and animosity, Paul explains that even when we find ourselves in placed in unjust situations and positions, even when we've been placed in a position of inferiority in life, hatred and violence towards others is not right. It is never acceptable. Even in broken systems, the existence of evil does not justify the doing of evil. And why? Because Paul says, ultimately, we serve the Lord our God, in whose image we are all made, and he does not condone hatred or half-hearted service. He wants love and wholehearted service, even in broken systems. Afterwards, then Paul addresses the Christians now who are masters of enslaved persons, and he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know he who is both master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul here calls Christian owners of enslaved persons to treat their so-called living property in the same way, he says. That is, with respect and fear before God, with sincerity of heart, knowing that God was watching them at all times and in all moments. Paul shows them here that God's watching how they, would, how they treated other humans made in his image who are in Christ equal brothers and sisters in God's kingdom. And ultimately and most fundamentally, despite earthly distinctions, they are equally together slaves of the same heavenly master, God himself. And in this way, Paul is seeking to humble the masters, putting them in their place in the kingdom of God, that equal standing in which we all have before him. As we considered how tempting it was for slaves to hate their masters, so it was tempting for masters to be harsh and threatening with their slaves. And Paul says, that is not allowed. That is not okay at all. In fact, God himself does not show any more or less favor 
of kind or kindness to people based on their legal or socioeconomic status. God does not turn his kind face towards those who are rich, wealthy, free, etc., and then turn his back on others. No, he shows no favoritism. Therefore, we must not either. So Christians, be careful how you treat or speak of others based on their legal status. And that is relevant for us today, right? Show all people the respect and kindness deserved to them as image bearers of God. Now, as we press on a little bit more, how does this apply to us today? Well, fortunately, we do not have any kind of legal slavery today in our culture. And so what is the closest parallel analogy that we can apply uh, to our own life today? Well, scholars conclude that the closest comparison is perhaps with people enlisted in the armed services, in which there is a hierarchy with clear orders from Uh, superiors. There's this clear chain of command. The members of military receive direct orders from their superiors, and they they are not allowed to disobey an order unless it is clearly illegal. But even then, if it's an illegal order, there's a lot of pressure for them to obey. And so there is a strong parallel or correlation between those two with armed forces. Yet another comparison is often made with general employment, right? The working relationships that we often find ourselves in between employees and their supervisors or CEOs. There are obvious differences here, but we still find truths that apply, and here are two that apply to us all. All of us work for others, and ultimately, our work for others is service for Christ. And in all of our work, God delights in wholehearted service to others. He wants us to use all of our natural gifts and talents for the well-being of our neighbors. And work is not a necessary evil just to make money in this world. It is an opportunity to serve others in the name of Jesus. And we draw that out of the text here. The second one is this, that performance on the job for human approval, just for eye service, Well, that yields fickle rewards, but service to the Lord yields forever rewards. That's what Paul says. Don't just work for the praise of man, rather work for the joyful anticipation of hearing God the Father say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, today most most people have the, the disposition to work, well, just to make money, just for their salary, just for those benefits here and now but we should work to serve others and to earn that eternal reward in the new creation from God, which will never run out, will never fade. And one last, last point here in application to us, the role of supervising or managing others should be done with utmost respect and dignity for those who are under your authority in the workplace. Remember that God cares more about how you treat others that are made in the image of God than how much money you are making for your store or your company or for yourself. You see that even though there are significant differences between our cultural moment and the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago, that there are still principles that apply to us today. But now, as I promised, I want us to circle back and consider those seeds of truth that Paul plants here in this text that should lead us to anticipate and promote the disillusion of all human enslavement. And that's our third point, the commonality in Christ.
So now imagine this with me. When this church at Ephesus first heard this letter read and explained to them, there in the congregation sat enslaved persons and masters, their own masters at times. They were gathered together in Christ. In a sense, we can think of the church gathering as the common room in the house of God, the common room where we all come together and share in common Christ. It is the place where we all gather, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, legal and undocumented citizens, right? Here, we are all equal before the eyes of God in Christ, on common ground. All the ways that we set ourselves apart in this world of meritocracy are erased when we call upon the name of Jesus together. Because here, here, as Christians, we denounce our own merits, our own personal status and achievements. And together, we lay claim to the merits of Jesus Christ for us. We set aside our own achievements and lay a hold of Christ for us. This is the common of the gospel, where we find ourselves equally deserving of God's holy judgment for our sins, having offended him, and yet equally justified by faith alone in Christ alone, equally justified together. You see, these are the gospel seeds that we find here in the text, truths that if planted and watered would ultimately dissolve all kinds of human slavery, all kinds of ways that we divide and distinguish ourselves among each other and setting up a a kind of meritocracy in our hearts, judging people by it. And notice that Paul calls here for equal treatment of one another. He says, treat them in the same way. Again, why? Because God doesn't show favoritism. Well, logically then, if God does not see or make any distinction between persons, then how can you, oh man, justify perpetuating such distinctions? You see the logic there of what Paul is planting subtly in this text. The more that Christians meditate on these truths together in the common room of the kingdom of God as common equals before God and Christ, and the more they would see the injustice of making such distinctions between themselves in the home, in the marketplace, in the world. Here in Christ, we see the reality of what God has done for us. And not only that, but there in the common room of the kingdom of God in the church, and even today, we hear the gospel preached over and over again. That gospel message, and what is it? We heard it earlier from Philippians chapter 2, where the very Son of God, our heavenly master, our heavenly master, humbled himself, becoming what? A slave for us. He left his privileged status in glory behind in order to suffer the injustice of this broken world as a slave, to die on the cross in our place. Why? in order to purchase our freedom from slavery to sin and death, in order to make us not slaves of God's kingdom, but sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ forevermore. 
You see, here in the common room of the kingdom of God, we hear the gospel over and over again, pounding the truths more and more into the depths of our heart. The gospel itself, the story about the Lord Jesus Christ suffering for us to free us is the greatest truth that we hold in common. And the more that gospel takes root in our hearts and the more peace and justice and love we will desire and seek. And so here at the close, after this close study of the passage, its historical context, now I can greatly appreciate this portion of God's word. And I hope that you can as well. And together I pray that each week as we meet here in this common room of God's kingdom in the name of our common master, Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will continue to sprout gospel seeds in our hearts and produce the fruit of peace, justice, and love in preparation for our eternal life in God's kingdom. May you continue to do that. Amen. Lord God, as we are about to sing together, thy works, not mine, O Christ. Here together in this common room of the kingdom of God, we denounce our own merits, our own achievements. We recognize that they do not measure up to the standard of your perfection, that in fact we deserve your wrath, all of us, equally. And so we lay a hold again by faith to Christ and all he has done for us. He who set aside his privileged status and glory in order to become a slave, to die in our place so that we would be freed from sin and death and the condemnation that we so deserve and be called children of God. Lord, work that truth into our hearts. And if there is someone here today that has not yet believed in Jesus Christ and trusts trusted in him and his merits, denouncing their own, Lord, we ask that you would give them that faith to set aside their own merits and to cling to Christ and find in him our all in all. This is our hope, this is our faith in Christ that you have given us by your spirit, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Loved ones, let's stand and sing.